Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Episode 16, Jesus Goes to Hell. My mother was born and raised in the Methodist Church. One time, she went to a Presbyterian church with a friend, and it came time for the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is just a brief statement of faith, and like most creeds, it was written as a kind of committee document. It was intended to solidify what we believe as opposed to what those crazy heretics over there believe. The Apostles' Creed has very ancient roots, though it was certainly not composed by any of the original apostles of Jesus. My mother knows the Apostles' Creed by heart, so she didn't need to read it when they got to that part of the liturgy. But she was rather surprised when the Presbyterians, in the section about the belief in Jesus Christ, recited that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Up to this point, everything was going fine for mom, but then they continued. He descended into hell. Hold up. He did what now? Right before the next line, which is all about his resurrection, three days after his death, etc., etc., you got this intriguing line that my mother had never heard before. Is this the main difference between Presbyterians and Methodists? Definitely not. In fact, it seems that John Wesley actually intended for Methodists to include this line when they said the Apostles' Creed, but that didn't end up happening. John Calvin's predestination and John Wesley's sanctification seemed distant concerns to my mom when she tripped over this alternate version of the creed, which seemed like, at the time, maybe was the most important difference between Presbyterians and Methodists, at least on the ground. So whose version is better, the Methodists or the Presbyterians? I'm glad you asked. Well, the earliest versions of the creed didn't have this line, he descended to hell. So if the oldest version of the creed is the best, then I suppose my mom wins. But the Apostles' Creed was not the only creed, and it was as early as the 4th century when a council in modern Serbia called the 359 Creed of Sirmium, or the Dated Creed, includes Jesus going down to hell, and by the 8th century or so, this phrase found its way into the Apostles' Creed in Western Europe. But why did they do this? Jesus went to hell? Like my mother, I definitely missed that day in Sunday school. But this idea of Jesus descending into hell intersects with a whole tradition within Christianity that helps to explain two rather irksome questions in theology. Question one. Jesus dies on a Friday, celebrated on Good Friday by most Christians, and then shows up again on earth, walking and talking with his disciples on Easter Sunday. So what exactly was Jesus up to between Friday and Sunday? Turns out he was on a secret mission to the underworld. This lesser-known adventure of Jesus will eventually get codified into Catholic doctrine as what we call in English the harrowing of hell. It was also rendered into a striking icon of resurrection in the Eastern Orthodox traditions. Protestants generally poo-pooed the whole thing. More on that later. Now on to our second question. 
since it appears that early Christians believed that faith in Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation, what did these early Christians think happened to the righteous people depicted in the Hebrew Bible? You know, people like Ruth, Esther, Abraham, Moses, and David. The patriarchs and the prophets. And what about the matriarchs? Well, because of the literal patriarchy, your question about the matriarchs will be ignored by these early Christians entirely. But our starring text for this episode, called the Gospel of Nicodemus, or sometimes the Acts of Pilate, will put to rest your curiosity about both Jesus's shenanigans between his death and resurrection, as well as your concerns about the righteous dead who died before the coming of Christ. And if all that doesn't catch your interest, the text also features an argument between Satan and Hades, in which Hades blames everything on Satan. How cool is that? As I mentioned before, this story definitely did not appear in my Methodist Sunday School. So is Jesus's adventure in the underworld biblical? This is, of course, the beef I was referring to earlier when I mentioned that Protestants generally poo-poo the harrowing of hell. But I'll let you judge for yourself. There are several different biblical citations that are given as evidence for this doctrine, but I'm going to limit myself to kind of the greatest hits here. There are two from 1 Peter. The first one comes from chapter 3. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, and here's the key part, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey. The second one from 1 Peter comes from the fourth chapter and goes like this. For this is the reason the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead, so that though they had been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. So I'll take those two first and just say a couple of things about them. One is you have to decide what the spirits in prison means. Is that necessarily people who have died or not? And similarly, the dead sounds super straightforward here, but it's possible that the author had in mind those who are spiritually dead. And so you can't be entirely sure what's being referred to here. Then I want to move to this section from Matthew 27. And it talks about the moment that Jesus dies and was resurrected. All these sort of cosmic signs happen. And here it goes. Okay. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. This is the key part. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, so that's the good part. All right. Elements of the tradition that we're talking about, the harrowing of hell, Jesus going down into hell, coming back up and bringing people with him, are definitely here. But as always, a lot of things hinge on interpretation, as I've already mentioned. And what eventually emerges in this tradition is much more complex than any of these biblical verses indicate on their own or even together as a as a whole. So now it's time to explore a bit of these early traditions. But before we do so, I want to clarify something. The place that Jesus went where the souls of the dead resided was often referred to as Hades in Greek. 
So what was this place like? And if you've got in your mind images from Dante's Inferno, or you're thinking about little red demons with pitchforks and fires, you're headed in the wrong direction here. Hades was much more similar to what was called in the Hebrew Bible, Sheol, which was a place under the ground where dead people went. It was not a place of punishment or a particularly bad place to be, but neither was it full of fat babies with wings and too much rouge playing on lyres. Okay, now that we're clear on Hades as a sort of neutral, not necessarily horrible place for dead people, let's move on to the liturgical texts, which are simply textual witnesses to the worship traditions of Christianity. Drawing on and embellishing those examples from 1 Peter that I mentioned earlier, there are several liturgical traditions of what exactly Christ did in Hades. Christ seems to have announced the gospel, and in some cases, baptized the dead. It's also unclear who among the dead Christ preached to or brought out of hell. Was it just the saints of Israel? Was it also pagan saints? Was it all the dead who had died before Christ and not had the opportunity to convert? Other traditions, instead of emphasizing Christ preaching, paint a picture of military conquest of death and Satan along the lines of the language that Paul uses, which we discussed in episode 10. This victory over death leads to a liberation of all humanity, starting with Adam and Eve. There is also some confusion in these early traditions that come after the New Testament regarding the realm of the dead. Are we talking about Hades slash Sheol that I mentioned before, or, in a minority of sources, are we referring to a place of punishment or torment for the wicked, which does occasionally show up, and is perhaps based on the scattered references to Gehenna, mainly in the Gospels. And Gehenna was a place of destruction, of suffering, and of punishment. Perhaps unsurprisingly, one of the most important places in early Christian liturgy that the doctrine of Christ's descent into hell appears is in liturgies for the Quarto Decimin Passover, which was the older one-night celebration aligned with Jewish Passover, that was the precursor to the Christian Triduum, that is, the three-day celebration ending with Easter Sunday. So, to recap, the most important place in early Christian liturgy was in celebrations of Easter and the resurrection, whether in this first iteration called the Quarto Deciman Passover or in the later tradition that we call the Christian Triduum. Okay. In other words, the theme of the descent into hell is a very old fixture in early Christian liturgy. This descent was often associated with other very ancient traditions in the celebration of Easter, such as the association of the story of Jesus' resurrection with that of the liberation of the Israelites from Egypt. As might be expected, the liturgical versions of this tradition appear to circumvent some of the hot debates going on in theological circles. Did Jesus save all the dead, or just some? Did Christ's human nature as well as his divine nature descend to hell? What happens to those who die after Christ's descent into the underworld? Is the underworld divided according to good and bad? None of these are definitively answered by looking at the sum total of the liturgical texts that survive. We've got different answers to these questions, and sometimes they're sidestepped entirely. 
So to sum up, the scriptures provide bits and pieces of this tradition of Christ going into hell, and the liturgical texts offer some development with a lot of variation. Let's turn now to what you've all been waiting for, the Gospel of Nicodemus, also known as the Acts of Pilate, and the section within it called the Descent of Christ to Hades. First, a word on this rather convoluted set of titles for this text. Both names, the Gospel of Nicodemus and the Acts of Pilate, refer to characters from the Gospel narratives and are meant to both provide a kind of sense of authenticity to the Gospels as well as an attribution of an earlier date than they deserve. So neither Nicodemus nor Pilate wrote this work, but it was known by these titles in an attempt to make it popular and to fit its traditions into the larger Orthodox Christian worldview. The section we're going to look at is sometimes called the Descent of Christ to Hades. And it begins with a rather extraordinary statement coming from the lips of Joseph of Arimathea. The character you may remember from the Gospels is the man who took responsibility for the burial of Jesus in a tomb. Here, Joseph claims that what is amazing is not the resurrection of Jesus, like old news apparently, but that Jesus raised many other dead people who since then had appeared to many folks in Jerusalem. So in other words, like there were a lot of witnesses. Nobody's like making this up. Okay. Upon hearing this, the chief priests Annas and Caiaphas go off to Arimathea to find these resurrected dead people, which seems like, I mean, I get it on the one hand. On the other hand, like I'm thinking zombies, like how pleasant is this going to turn out? I, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, so they do, they go try to find these resurrected dead people, including the sons of Simeon. Okay. So who's Simeon? Simeon is this old devout Jew who saw Jesus as a child in the temple and who is said to have responded with what is now known as the Nunc Dimittis, a beautiful canticle used in Christian worship, especially Compline, Vespers, and Evensong. Okay, so once they track down Simeon's sons, the chief priests make them testify, swearing an oath to God in the presence of the ancient book of the Jews, as it's referred to in our text. Then they testify. So the sons of Simeon say that they were in Hades with all who had fallen asleep. And that's a euphemism that reminds me of a similar Pauline phrase in both 1 Corinthians 15, as well as 1 Thessalonians 4, and which we also heard in Matthew 27 earlier. So apparently it's super dark in Hades, but suddenly a light similar to the sun shines out and everyone can finally see each other. All the patriarchs get together with all the prophets, and Isaiah pipes up and says, Hey guys, this is the light I was prophesying about. And then John the Baptist shows up, whom the patriarchs don't recognize, because, you know, they died before he was born. And he's all, I am sent to preach to you about the Son of God, and whoever has faith in him will be saved, but whoever doesn't believe in him will be condemned. So when this Jesus guy shows up, you better worship him, because he is your only shot for repenting, for having worshipped idols, or for sinning in, you know, the land of the living. Then Adam, you know, the first human being, tells his son Seth to speak up. And this is sort of weird because it's like he's telling a story that's about Adam. So why doesn't Adam just say it? It's unclear. Anyway, Seth obliges and says that when Adam was dying, Adam had sent Seth to beg for some oil from 
this thing called the Tree of Mercy, which I've totally never heard of before, but which apparently was situated inside the Garden of Eden, from which Adam and all his descendants had been banished. And this Tree of Mercy totally does not show up in Genesis, just FYI. Okay, but an angel lets him know that that is not going to happen. That same angel prophesies that in a mere 5,500 years, the Son of God will anoint Adam with the oil, as well as washing him in water and the Holy Spirit. Okay, next in our narrative comes my favorite part. Satan and Hades have a -a tete-a-tete. Satan says to Hades, that there's this guy named Jesus, who's the son of God, who caused a lot of trouble for the devil on earth among the mortals by persecuting the devil's servants and healing people and the like. Hades' response is that it seems that Jesus must be pretty powerful. And he also says, but if you say that you heard him fearing death, He said this to mock you and deride you, wanting to seize you by his powerful hand. Woe, woe to you for all ages to come. Okay. But Satan does not heed this warning and orders Hades to seize Jesus when he comes. Hades then replies, girl, you just told me that Jesus is able to bring dead people back to life. If he can do that, then what can we possibly do to oppose him? Remember that dead guy, Lazarus? Just after I had eaten him, yes, you heard that right, eaten him, someone from among the living forcefully dragged him from my intestines through a word alone. So if we let Jesus come here, he might throw everything into total chaos. Even now, I can tell that everyone I have devoured since the very beginning is all stirred up inside me, and it's giving me some pretty awful indigestion. The whole Lazarus thing seems like a really bad sign. So let's just not bring Jesus here because I think he's coming to raise all the dead. Okay, so summary, Hades totally gets why Jesus is such an existential threat to the underworld and to Satan and to Hades. But we have this devil figure who seems completely clueless about what he himself has brought about. So the image of Hades as a kind of mouth ready to swallow up the dead will find a rather interesting expression in medieval art as what's known as the hellmouth, an image that first shows up in ancient Britain, likely mixing in some of their native lore and iconography, and perhaps also was inspired by Leviathan. The image of Hades as a devouring mouth, likewise, recalls the Persephone legend from the Homeric hymn to Demeter, which also has Hades, the god this time, running off with his new bride and escaping into the underworld just as the earth itself cracks open, in a sense swallowing them up as they passed from this world to the next. So back to our story. Next, Jesus shows up and just starts quoting scripture at everyone as he is wont to do. Oh, you rulers, lift the gates, ancient gates, rise up, and the king of glory will enter. So then Hades, in a fit of bravery, tells Satan to go take care of the problem. He also instructs the demons to fortify the gates and secure the deadbolts and to keep watch. This whole sequence now reminds me a lot of Handel's Messiah, and that's probably just because we're quoting some of the same lines. But don't worry, I won't sing to you this time. You have Isaiah and David sprouting out biblical verses, and angels as well. Even Hades himself is saying, who is this king of glory? which is from Psalm 24, verse 8. 
So let's think about that moment for a second, about Hades being forced to speak scripture. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke record similar scenes of Jesus' temptation by Satan in the desert, which you may recall from episode 1, where Satan spouts scripture at Jesus, offering him convenient rationales for giving up on his fasting, for testing God, and for seizing political power for himself. But here we have a villain, this time Hades rather than Satan, also repeating scripture, but not to tempt Jesus. Instead, it's to dramatize the early Christian interpretation of Psalm 24, which Christians interpreted to be a prophetic reference to Jesus, the King of Glory. Even more interesting is that Hades has already been told who this literal gatecrasher is. It's Jesus. So the text says that Hades asked, who is this King of Glory? And it goes on, quote, as if he did not know, end quote. And the angels, again quoting Psalm 24, answer, a Lord who is mighty and powerful, a Lord powerful in war. So what do we make of this interchange? One way to think through this is through the story that immediately follows the temptation of Christ in the desert in Luke's gospel, when Jesus enters the synagogue and reads from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then rolls the scroll back up and declares, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Rather than Jesus' going out and bringing good news to the poor, releasing the captives, etc., which might be the more obvious way to fulfill scripture, it is in the act of speaking the words and having them heard that the passage from Isaiah, understood here as a prophetic prediction, comes true. Similarly, in the Gospel of Nicodemus, the dialogue between Hades and the angels actualizes or manifests the passage from Psalm 24, but with a critical difference that Hades appears to be a hapless puppet forced to utter old prophecies and ask a question he already knows the answer to. He is merely a player in a preordained cosmic drama whose fate is sealed by the figure whose entry into the underworld he is made to announce. This gets us to a broader point. The pairing of Hades and Satan sounds really Pauline. It smacks of the power of sin and death, powers and dominions, and other Pauline language for evil that we talked about a little bit in episode 10. Satan is a super weak character here. It's Hades who plays the main part. We're in a universe where Jesus' main opponent is death or Hades, and not necessarily Satan, who's more of a bit player. Satan, as Hades convincingly argues, is the one who creates his own predicament, perhaps as a kind of model of the consequences of unrepentant sin. Next comes a bit of a bondage scene, where the king of glory ties up Satan and Hades and tells the angels to hold them fast until his second coming. Then Hades gives Satan a real talking to. He blames Satan for this entire predicament, and he also has this fairly sophisticated theology. He says, But everything you gained through the tree of knowledge you have lost through the tree of the cross. O chief devil, the beginning of death, the root of sin, the goal of all evil, what evil did you find against Jesus that moved you to destroy him? Then, as you may have guessed, Jesus busts the dead out, they are released from their bonds, and all hell breaks loose, literally. 
Then we have the scene that is reproduced very often in Eastern iconography. Jesus stretches out his right hand to grasp and raise up Adam. And this does also show up in Western art sometimes. What follows is a kind of christening, where Jesus blesses all the patriarchs, prophets, martyrs, and ancestors, starting with Adam, by making the sign of the cross on their foreheads. This probably echoes the liturgical practice of marking new baptisms with holy oil in the shape of the cross on the forehead. In this instance, of course, we also have this added layer of Christian supersessionism enacted in this imagined liturgical conversion from Judaism to Christianity for these patriarchs, prophets, etc. Then there's a really weird scene with Enoch and Elijah, who got to zap directly into paradise without dying or descending into Hades, and who will at the end of time be sent back to earth to fight the Antichrist and be killed by him before rising after three days and being snatched up in the clouds to meet the Lord. This meeting the Lord in the sky might remind those of you who listened to our episode on the rapture of the verse from 1 Thessalonians 4 that's being referenced here as well. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Next in our narrative, we have a kind of fan favorite from the Bible showing up. It's the thief who was crucified alongside Jesus. He had drawn the contrast between the innocence of Jesus and the guilt of himself and the other thief who's being executed, and he asks Jesus to remember him. Well, apparently that worked out pretty well for him, since he made it to paradise. With that, our story comes to an end. The sons of Simeon, who had been sought out to testify to the chief priests, finish their tale and tell everyone that they had been sent back to earth by the archangel Michael to proclaim the Lord's resurrection after getting baptized in the Jordan with some other folks who had been resurrected. They were like, this has been dope, but we gotta go. And after blessing them, they sealed the books and immediately became invisible. And that's how the Gospel of Nicodemus, or the Acts of Pilate, ends. So what becomes of this tradition? In the West, this develops into the harrowing of hell. And harrowing just means raiding or looting. And it refers to Christ making off with the souls of the righteous dead. So the harrowing of hell is a doctrine that appears not only in the creeds, as we've discussed, but also in art, theology, and perhaps most memorably, in the mystery plays of medieval Europe. These were put on by craft guilds and were hugely popular sources of entertainment that reminded people of the larger, broader salvation history. And The Harrowing of Hell was one of the most popular of these plays. The dominant artistic representation of the resurrection, though, in the West, is of Jesus alone rising from the dead. By contrast, the Eastern icons, known as Anastasis, which means resurrection, generally depict Jesus not alone, but raising up others. He tramples down death, personified as Hades, and the gates of hell, while leading Adam, and sometimes also Eve, up by the wrist. And that's really kind of a fun detail. It shows who's doing the work here. It's by Jesus's action, not the grasping of the humans, which enacts this salvation. So if they had clasped hands instead, you wouldn't know if it's by Jesus's power or by the pulling themselves up by their bootstraps that Adam and Eve are saved. But by portraying Jesus pulling them by the wrists, 
you're supposed to be able to see that it's Jesus who lifts them. Is also reflected in what's called the Paschal Troparion, which is a kind of Easter song from the Orthodox liturgy, which goes, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and to those in the tombs, restoring life. It's a reminder that through dying, Jesus conquers or tramples down the enemy, which is death, in his resurrection, and he is restoring life to those who have died. So the enemy here is death, not Satan. Christ's victory is over the grave. This is a much more intricate story than I can really do justice to in our short format here, but I want to draw out a few questions that this exploration of the Gospel of Nicodemus and the broader tradition of the harrowing of hell suggests. Is Christ's descent a singular opportunity for those who have died to turn over a new leaf and find salvation through Christ? Or is it a kind of precursor for purgatory, that purifying process after death that prepares souls for salvation? Is the basis for the last judgment limited to our time on earth, or do we get a kind of second chance after we die to turn to God? Finally, if Satan can be robbed of his charges once, and if he himself is ultimately bound for destruction, How does he take on such an outsized role in Western Christendom in the coming centuries? This episode concludes our first season. So first of all, thank you for going on this wild ride with us. We would love to hear from you on Twitter. Our handle is at heads underscore T-E-N. I hope you enjoyed our recent biblical episodes and our bonus mini episodes on the Apocrypha. We will be taking a brief hiatus to get ready for season two, when we will tackle the devil in early and medieval Christianity. So hang tight and be sure to check back on Monday, February 22nd, when the first episode of the new season drops. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.